What do you do when life gets hard? What do you do when life gets hard? Mary was a very young woman when she became a widow. A few years later, short time later, she married again. She started having kids and she set about the business of raising her family. At the age of 56, she became a widow a second time. So she experienced the pain of of burying two husbands in the span of about 30 years. Mary's story, though, is not a modern story. When her second husband died, the year was 1775. Not only was she a widow for the second time, but this time she was a widow right as the American Revolution was beginning. The type of pain she would experience would increase. Her husband, Moses Draper, was a great farmer. He had a wonderful farm, and and she took the farm over. She kept it going, but she didn't keep it going just for her family. You see, every week, at least almost every week, hundreds of Continental soldiers walked by her Massachusetts farm. And she made sure that when they did, there was enough bread and cheese and cider to strengthen and refresh them for all that they were about to do. One historic volume records this about her. Miss Draper felt the deepest sympathy for the hardships inevitably encountered by the newly raised troops and considered the limited means she possessed not as her own property, but belonging to her distressed country. So Mary Draper did not consider her life or the things that she owned, her possessions, as something she should selfishly cling to. But rather, she used her life and her possessions to serve others. That may sound a little bit familiar. This is what Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus did not selfishly cling to his equality with God as a trophy that he could hold up and brag about out in public. He was perfect, he was innocent, And he humbled himself and volunteered to be executed for the penalty of my sin and your sin. In fact, everything we see about the cross says freedom. You see, the death of Jesus on the cross, his resurrection is the only true path to true everlasting freedom. See, the freedom that the gospel offers is is not something that's temporary or just lasts while we live on this earth. The freedom of the gospel, it exists today and it lasts forever. So the question for all of us today is this, are you really free? We will experience and enjoy and celebrate our freedom as Americans today, but, but are you truly free in the everlasting sense? Are you believing in and trusting in and clinging to and relying on Jesus as your only source of ultimate salvation and ultimate freedom? If you aren't, then I encourage you, do not delay. 
You know, there's this phrase that we use, and, and sometimes it seems like it's overused, but if I were to pull out the news this morning, we would see it's not an overused phrase. And the phrase is this, you are not promised tomorrow. We're not. But through his birth and through his life and through his death and through his resurrection and through his ascension and through his returning again, Jesus has guaranteed an eternity of tomorrows to all those who will believe and follow. Mary Draper is not the Savior, but she was a servant. She wasn't a soldier, but she served soldiers. Her hard work, her kindness, her humility behind the scenes is a small part of the reason that this morning we sit as free people in church. She was a woman who decided that she was not going to live a selfish life of comfort. She was a woman who decided that she was going to serve the needs of other people. She was a woman that in her way, in her small way, in her farm, she was fighting for freedom. We could also put it this way. In a lot of ways, Mary Draper was shaping the future the future that we're living in right now. now. Last week we looked at the concept that the older men who are living right now are shaping the future for the generations to come. This morning we turn our attention to the ladies because the older women right now are shaping the future of tomorrow. Look with me at Titus chapter 2, verse 3. This is what Paul writes to Titus. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Well, who are older women? Well, Paul doesn't give us an age. Wise guy that Paul understands how to be smart about things. He doesn't give us an age. Somebody once said this. Women have seven ages. They go like this. The infant, the little girl, the miss, the young woman, the young woman, the young woman, and the young woman. <laughs> Paul doesn't give us an age, but we can kind of back up to last week in a moment and, and kind of say that if we look at history, if we look at culture, you know, we're thinking somewhere like maybe 60 and up or, or maybe 50 and up, you know, not, not a set age, so to speak. But really the picture here for older women is not even necessarily an age at all. The idea behind it is this is someone who's not just a year or two out of her mom and dad's house. This is a woman who's experienced some things in life. And people trust her and they turn to her for advice and for counsel. Now what kind of character traits would a woman like that have? Well, Paul paints a pretty good portrait for us. First he says, likewise. In other words, Paul says, all right, Titus, I've, I've given you these instructions for the men, and likewise, now I'm going to give you some instructions for the ladies. And that's true. That's kind of the, the feel here. But there's also a little other sense to this word, likewise. It's also saying this, well, likewise, the kind of things that I said for the men, well, these things apply to the ladies, too. It's, it's not like these are completely two different lists. So what did he say about the men? Just a quick recap, verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. 
So Paul's saying, likewise, the, the older women should be the same way. They should be temperate and sober. They should not be ruled by an appetite for the things of the world. They should be dignified. They should be serious about the things of God and serious about things in life that are supposed to be important. They're supposed to be sensible. They're, they're supposed to be humble. And, and they use the Bible as the, the guide for their attitudes and their opinions. They're also supposed to be sound in faith, meaning that they understand the message of the Bible and they take the message of the Bible and they apply it to how they talk and how they think and how they act and how they live. They're also supposed to be sound in love. It means that as they grow older, they don't become grumpy old women. Rather, they become women full of more grace and more compassion. And then lastly, they're supposed to be sound in perseverance. When times get tough, when times get hard, they know what it means to hang in there and keep trusting God and looking to Him. So that's part of the likewise. What's after the likewise? Well, look what Paul says. Likewise, these women are to be reverent in their behavior. Reverent, sacred, fitting, proper. The Greek language here has the meaning of being reverent in how you dress. Now, when we talk about being reverent in how we dress, we want to be careful. We want to be careful about making too many legalistic rules about what people can and can't wear. After all, when we see in the New Testament people approaching people, or Jesus approaching people who were obsessed with laws like that, Jesus rarely had anything nice to say to them. So it's not about legalistic rules, but on the flip side, we also need to remember that our dress needs to be a reflection not of our love of the culture, but of our love for Christ. We have here a picture for dress meaning uh, adornment. You know, what, what are you using as the guide for how you choose your clothes? You know, what are you wearing? Is it just what's popular? Is it what's silly? Or does it have anything to do with God? The word for adorn in the New Testament has the idea of cosmos. It's where we get our word from that, at least. Cosmos, the universe, right? The reality is when we look at Greek culture, we see that the Greeks believed that the universe was lined up, that it was measured out, that it had some, some harmony to it. And so when we see this word for adorn, for, for putting on, for being reverent and dressed in the New Testament, we should think about what it means to line up with our love for God, not lining ourselves up with a love for culture. Well, what does that mean? Well, just a moment ago, I said that the primary meaning behind reverent here was connected to dress, but it stretches beyond just clothing. I mean, we know this, right? I mean, you can wear the most reverent clothes in the world to church on Sunday morning and still be the most malicious gossip in the church. So, so it's not just about clothing. It's about more than clothing. I love how Mary Cassian puts this when it comes to this idea of reverence. She writes, A Christian woman's look ought to be consistently put together, inside and out. This challenges those who put an undue emphasis on external appearance, as well as those who neglect their personal appearance. It's a corrective to women who dress extravagantly. It's a corrective to those who dress seductively. But it's also a corrective to those who think that holy means frumpy, ugly, unfeminine, and out of style. Frumpy is just a great word. Becoming indicates that running around in baggy jeans and t-shirts all the time is just as inappropriate as being obsessed with stylish clothing. 
It means that a woman's appearance ought to be put together nicely. It ought to be pleasant and attractive on the inside and the outside. That's a great word. See, it's not primarily about the clothing. It's not about the outside. It's about the inside. It's the conduct of the heart. It's about behavior matching beliefs. Jesus never said, do everything you can to clean up the outside first. That's the opposite of the gospel. Jesus said, watch your heart. Look after your heart. And as you watch your heart, then what happens on the outside will become very clear. So this picture of reverence here is the idea of what's going on on the inside. It's the idea of carrying yourself in such a way, not just in in how you dress, but in how you act and how you talk and how you think. Carrying yourself in such a way that you honor God, that you help your own heart, and that you hold out the hope of Christ to other people. Now, does that sound like something that older women are the only ones should be doing? Or does that sound like something that all of us should be pursuing? Should be being reverent in our life something that we all should put on our schedule of things to pursue this week? Next, Paul says they need to not be malicious gossips. The Greek terminology here for malicious gossips is diabolos. More than 30 times in the New Testament, it's the word used to describe Satan. (laughs) There you go. I mean, you know, where is he going to run with this verse, right? The word actually means throw between because that's exactly what the enemy does. He throws conflict and he throws sin and he throws lies between us and God and between us and other people. In a sense, we could say that Paul's writing says, Titus, tell the ladies not to throw sin and lies. Tell them not to act like Satan. I mean, you would think we would never have to repeat that, right? (laughs) That one time would be enough. But the truth is, gossip seems to never go out of style. Gossip in its purest form is thinking the worst of others. It's portraying people in a bad light. It's even retelling stories about other people that may or may not be true, but don't need to be repeated. Gossip is an emotional cancer. And it eats away at the hearts and the minds of the person that's being gossiped about. And though they don't realize it, it also eats away at the heart and the mind of the person doing the gossiping. It's the kind of thing we want to have nothing to do with. Malicious gossips. So those are the phone conversations we want to stay out of. Those are the emails we want to stay away from. Those are the the comments on social media we want to avoid. Those are the text messages we want to not have. We want to not be able for anybody to say, oh, they're throwing lies. And we definitely don't want anybody to say, oh, they're being just like Diabolus. They're being just like Satan. And we don't want anyone saying that about us. Now, does that sound like something that only older women should think about? Or should we all be trying really hard not to be malicious gossips? Next, Paul writes, not enslaved to much wine. In 60 AD, around that time when Titus was on the island of Crete, many of the older women on the island lived like good old drunk gossips. I mean, that's just how they lived. That's how things went on the island. That's how they functioned. And Paul knew that women who were following Jesus were going to have to be different. 
They needed to stick out in that kind of culture. People needed to know that when they saw a Christian woman and she started experiencing difficulties or trials or hardships, that she would not run quickly and immediately and wait too much to wine or drugs or men or partying or anything else that you could fill in that blank. See, Crete was full of sin. They were, it was an island just teeming with lies, with crime and sexual morality and just about anything that you could imagine. And Paul knew that these Christian women needed to be reminded of this one thing, that when it came to the hardships of life, what they needed most was more of Jesus. Ladies, don't model to your family and your friends that the world is more fun or more comfort than the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. Because see, what your family and your friends need the most is they need Jesus more than anything. Women are not to be drunk or addicted with alcohol or food or gossip or drugs or shopping or sleep or TV or hobbies or exercise, pretty much anything else you want to put in that list. They should not be controlled by an appetite for the things of this world, but they should be controlled by a love for God. Next, Paul says this, teaching what is good. Women should be teaching what is good. What's good? What is good? The greatest good news in the universe is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's good. That's the greatest good that we could possibly teach. Now, I'm going to say something that may sound a little shocking at first, and that's okay. Stay with me. When it comes to your family hearing the gospel, it's not my job. It's not my job. It's not Tammy's job, it's not Brad's job, it's not Lindsay's job, it's not the RA leader or the GA leader's job, it's not Billy Graham's job. When it comes to your family hearing the gospel, we all have a part in that. We're supposed to be doing everything we can, from me to the RA leader to Billy Graham. All of us are supposed to be doing what we can to make much of Jesus, but it's not primarily our job for your family to hear the gospel. If you're a Christian, it's your job for your family to hear the gospel. At least that's what the Bible says. Deuteronomy chapter 6. When your children ask you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your children, we shall go to the pastor and the church staff to find the answers to your questions. That's not what it says. I have to tell you this. So at the bottom of this screen, normally I have the copyright for, you know, the Bible that I use, the New American Standard. So this is what I wrote today. No American Standard book, copyright 2535 from the Crazy Man Foundation. That's where that verse comes from. It's not really the Bible. No, this is what it really says. Then you shall say to your children, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. In other words, what you say to your children is there's one true creator, God, and with his mighty hand, he saves. And maybe you go on to say there's only one God, there's there's nobody else like him in the cosmos. And he is full of love, and he's full of grace, and he's full of mercy. And he's also perfect, and he's just, and he's sovereign. 
In fact, the only reason we know what justice is, the only reason we know what right from wrong is, is because God exists. And one day, he is going to perfectly carry out perfect justice once for all. And perfect justice means nobody gets to go to heaven unless you're perfect. That's perfect justice. Separated from perfect love forever and ever. And that is perfect justice. But God is also rich in mercy. And so he has made a way to satisfy perfect justice. He has made a way to be rescued, to be redeemed, to be saved. And that way is all found in the person of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus died so that we might have life. He died to set us free. He died to rescue and save us. He took our place so that one day we might have the opportunity to truly be wrapped in perfect love forever. And then maybe you say this, and mommy is believing in and trusting in and relying on and clinging to Jesus as my greatest joy and my greatest hope. And the reason that mommy is believing in Jesus is because Jesus has made the way for me to no longer fear death because the curse of sin no longer has a grip on me. That's what we tell our kids. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. I am free because of Jesus. That's why I believe. Why does that matter this week? Some of you may have seen the comments from Russell Moore. He's the president of the Religious and Ethics, I'm sorry, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He made some comments this week in the interview on a response to the Supreme Court decision this week. I just want to read a couple of portions of what he said. There are two sorts of churches that will not be able to reach the sexual revolution's refugees. A church that has given up on the truth of the scriptures, including on marriage and sexuality, and has nothing to say to a fallen world. That's the first church, just given up on truth. And then here's the second one. The church that screams with outrage at those who disagree will have nothing to say to those who are looking for a new birth. He goes on to say this. We must stand with conviction and with kindness, with truth and with grace. We must hold to our views and love those who hate us for them. We must not only speak Christian truths, we must speak with a Christian accent. We must say what Jesus has revealed, and we must say those things the way Jesus does with mercy and with an invitation to new life. That, that's what we have. That is the invitation of Christianity. It's new life. Not just life today, but life that lasts forever. And the reason we offer this new life, if you're an older woman or an older man or a younger woman or a younger man or, or anybody in between, the reason this is what we have to offer is because only new life in Christ really sets us free. See, it's only through Christ that the grip of sin loses 
everything. And it's only through Christ that we gain everything. Everything. Mary Draper, she was compelled to shun a selfish life of of comfort, a selfish life of worldly pleasure, a, a selfish life of emotional drama so that she could give of her life and her possessions in a small way to make sure that today we have freedom. And if you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then the gospel compels us to shun having a selfish, comfortable life, a life full of worldly pleasure or emotional drama, so that we can give of ourselves and give of our possessions to help people truly be free. Because the gospel brings freedom. And Jesus has died to set us free. Let's pray.